Now this open collaboration to understand social needs in Singapore is like a homegrown initiative to, um, I don't like to say this, but it's to crowdsource social needs. Crowdsourcing sounds like it's uh, random and messy, but actually it's complex, serious work that can be done uh, without centralized coordination or much centralized coordination. Um, so the context for this is, um, the normal affairs is this, if you work in, let's say, a government agency in, in charge of certain issues or a non-profit specializing in something, maybe your boss reads an article about, oh, social inequality, oh, the UN has this book, oh, there's some end-of-life thing going on here, they, they send you an email, maybe an attachment, maybe a report, and then you read, okay, I need to know this stuff, but I'm too busy, so I'm going to keep it. I'm going to keep it somewhere, I'm going to read it later, but then, of course, it disappears into your email, you forget about it. And when the time comes to uh, make, to deliberate, make decisions, you've, you've long forgotten about this. And I think it's not, be in fact, uh, a lot of people argue that we don't have enough information or this or that. I would argue on the contrary that we have a lot of information, in fact, too much information. It's just too difficult to take stock and make sense of the diverse kinds of information out there. And, and so um, it's common even amongst government agencies to have these bilateral meetings so that you can avoid duplications or have clear role delineations on who's supposed to do what. And so that's just the research work, that's just the needs assessment, right? Understanding social issues. Um, and in the end, we have a fragmented understanding and it's also dependent on the capabilities of individual organizations doing it, you know, to the extent that the uh, Lien Center for Social Innovation has the bandwidth to do some studies, they will do it to the extent that others have the bandwidth to do it, they will do it. Um, so that's where we, um, we thought. Um, so previously, I worked in the National Council of Social Service and we embarked on this end-of-life needs assessment and it was a very productive participatory project. Right? The researchers worked with the service team, we went down to talk to social workers and we came up with an understanding of end-of-life needs. And so we thought, okay, we have this stuff, we have a catalog of information, we have a report. Uh, let's send it to some experts to get their views. And we sent it to an NUS professor, and then she said, oh, look, this is interesting. Can you send me this? Or you can add something there. And oh, look, there's a spelling mistake you have here. And instead of feel embarrassed by the fact that, oh, got spelling mistake, we thought, wow, one person's view has already contributed very quickly to the improvement of your knowledge base, right? Catching big things and small things alike. What, what will happen if the larger community, the larger palliative care community can give inputs? Wouldn't that be great? And so we started to, um, I started to think, you know, maybe that's a good idea. Maybe you can do open collaboration. Open collaboration is basically tech-enabled platforms for kind of, um, well, the, the archetypal examples are Wikipedia for encyclopedic writing or the open source movement for software development. Can we also do this to understand and map out social needs in Singapore? So I, I went ahead and talked about the concept as good researchers like to do, right? Talk about the concepts but do nothing. And then I got tired of talking about the concepts and realized that, you know, maybe we can actually do something. So it was a very simple plug and play system. I paid $30 a month and using Zoho, some wiki platform, and we started doing something, right? We populated stuff and demonstrated it to people, and then evolved, and then I found a rich friend who was in the IT industry, sold his business for a lot of money, and had some free time on the side. So he gave even more support. He 
move the whole platform using the free uh, uh, Wikipedia software, the same open source Wikipedia software. And then now we have Joe who works at ASTAR, but uh, is, a, is our tech consultant and he's volunteering at Trampoline, a social enterprise. And he's our main guy. And every time I go look at the, the space now, it's upgraded. There's a calendar, there are tables. Uh, even the look and feel has changed thanks to him, right? Previously, I would send my friend six questions and in three weeks, he comes back and answers two questions. Um, so that's, that's the kind of the evolution of this. Um, the organizations behind it is us, a policy think tank, our tech partner, a Center for Social Innovation, so Lian Center for Social Innovation is here. Han Ping is here and he'll tell you more about what he does. But really, the groups involved are the voluntary organizations and community participation. So there are some groups uh, have been mobilized. There's a disability community network, and Marissa from DPA will tell you about that. It's, um, and it has subgroups, so for example, the the arts and disability pages is facilitated by very special arts and there are others facilitating other other pages and other groups there's also the end of life group that uh, gene from ips will be sharing with you later and there are many other assets we are interested in and want to partner up uh, so it's a question you know will community artists come on board youth workers service learning officers practice researchers and we've been kind of exploring and and, and discussing this so how does it look like? Just to give you a look. Um, so this is the current unfamiliar look because it's been changed in the last two days. If you go to the page, it shows you this is like the key dates for when the social collab meets. Um, you can go to these and let's say you click on disability and it brings you to a page whereby there are um, information about the needs, the gaps, the support services, uh, and reasons for the gaps and why, what you can do about it. Okay, it must load very long. And also previously, um, one of the recent upgrades is that you had to edit the source, the source code, but Joe has installed a visual editor so you can just make changes and the changes you make is what will, will happen on the page like, instead of uh, knowing how to bold and italicize and code. Okay, it's not working. Joe, die. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. Um, sometimes there are issues, and that's one of the, the things we are dealing with because this is an entirely unfunded ground-up uh, initiative. Um, okay, we won't wait for it to look. I'll just tell you about it, right? The, um, I'll turn it. Okay, basically it's like a page whereby there are needs, there are, you can populate what the existing services and solutions to it. And um, if you have an understanding of the cause of these gaps, and then also maybe suggest solutions to it. So at the heart of it, it's really a sense-making place. It is not a Wikipedia. You don't go to it to find out what is the definition of uh, disability or what is autism. You go in to find out what the needs and gaps are for the disability sector, for example. Um, who's currently involved? Um, so for disability, there's DPA, ABLE, Actual there's a, a host of voluntary organizations and even parent support groups there. Uh, there's end of life. The ones with question marks are, for example, the youth at risk. I've started 
tentatively to engage a long time ago and haven't followed up since. So we don't know if it will happen. So we're looking for facilitators and partners. Uh, mental health, we uh, raised the topic and there was some interest and AIC was keen, but we don't know whether it's going to happen. Um, so these are social causes. Uh, we also want to engage community assets and the backbone team doing the work uh, behind the scenes is IPS, Trampoline, Alliance Center for Social Innovation. Um, so this is a case study. Why, why do this? Uh, largely because, and this is Clay Shirky again, he argues that we hadn't had all the groups we wanted, we simply had all the groups we could afford. So the costs of association and coming together has uh, drastically reduced with uh, technology, with simply the ability to convene and come together. And so we wonder, you know, um, there's a lot of good that can come out from the disability sector and community coming together to share information, uh, deliberate on issues important to them, and you know, maybe surface position papers or even kind of collaborating one another. But no one's gonna set up a disability council because the overheads are high, right? So then the idea is, can we do all this without a council, right? Um, and those are some of the differences. Um, a council, you have to have, um, kind of have to get everything right. You have a constitution, terms of reference and bylaws. Whereas a community network, just people getting together informally and you devise the rules as you go along and if those rules and guiding principles don't work, you are able to refine and reform and then go ahead. And so we're trying that out, and Marissa can tell you more about that. Um, but what I really want to focus on is the kind of uh, shift in the ethos or the values of doing this work. Previously, if you had organizations, specialist organizations doing the work, you can be assured that, let's say, um, some nonprofit comes out with a study on elder care services in Singapore, and then MOH or MSF, NCSS be looking at that and saying, you know, what is relevant there? And shouldn't we be doing that work? Shouldn't we know this stuff? Shouldn't we be the authority on it? Um, plus, all the work that comes out, once a report is published, uh, the knowledge is snap. It's, it's a snapshot and it's static and it's already dead. Because tomorrow, maybe a new service comes up, maybe a new provider comes up, uh, policies change. Um, so proprietary knowledge, ownership of the knowledge has that kind of quality to it. Um, even if and this is coming from my own experience. If you're writing a report about something, you have to sound like you know everything, even though you don't. Nobody has monopoly over knowledge. So you will kind of glide over the stuff you don't know, emphasize the stuff you're really confident about, hope nobody asks you hard questions. Um, when we did it in the open collaboration way, because nobody owns, nobody owns the wiki, right? Everybody owns it in a sense. Anybody can contribute. There's also a, a kind of relief, right? Uh, and a kind of... Uh, a different ethic because you become more transparent about your ignorance. So you say, well, we don't know everything. This is the stuff we currently know. And if you can come and tell us that we are wrong or what we missed out, great. And so when we, in the early days, we were working with uh, RAs to do this work, the RA from SMU said, you know, this is kind of a really different way of doing research because when I'm in school, I have to know everything, I have to uh, write a paper that my professor thinks is high quality, I have to sound like I know my stuff. Here, you're asking me to tell people what you don't know, and that's fine. And to a large extent, I think that's the, the magic of it. It relieves the pressure on you to know everything. Uh, and also, 
Um, it, in the end, it's, um, it's a sense-making kind of place. It's not a repository of knowledge per se, but it's to help kind of overcome the overwhelming amount of knowledge out there. And how, how do you make sense of it? And if you make sense of it on your own versus if you make sense of it collectively with others, what's the difference? It's kind of like an experiment, right? You have admin data from government, you have researchers and scholars doing their work. Can the crowd, can the community contribute to this? Is it complementary? Can it be more robust? Can it contribute in some way? And so that's the kind of the ethos is that previously only you, the most well-placed, well-resourced organization can do this versus an, anyone and everyone can contribute. You don't have to have a PhD to say something. You are a caregiver of a service and you want to point out some gaps, the wait list is very long, etc. You can do that. Um, and you can do this for yourself. And um, I won't belabor the point, but I'll point out that while we've been talking about technology, uh, this really isn't a technology-driven platform. It is a people-driven platform. Because revolution doesn't happen when we adopt the technology. Uh, it's when, when society adopts new behavior. So this is a new way of working with one another. The technology helps, you know, it helps but the real innovation is a kind of a truly social type of innovation. It's people trying on new identities, new ways of relating to one another, uh, new ways of working together. And that to me is the, uh, the payoffs. Um, so in the early days when we were doing this quite informally, not part of IPS KPI yet, and it was a rainy day and only two people turned up and they, they came and said, why are you guys here? Nobody else turned up. So this guy says, the fragmentation of knowledge is a huge problem, you know? While there's a lot of willingness to do good, it takes so much effort just to find out what the needs are. You have to start building networks, talk to people, etc. If everything comes to a centralized platform, it would be great, right? Um, but a centralized platform that is decentrally controlled, right? And the other person say, well, it's because we believe in the first place, that's why we're here. And these are some of the things we've done so far. So we have the community forum, we have networks. We've done a really small wikithon where we got students to sit in a lab, give them NTCUC voucher at the end of three hours and see what came up. Uh, Republic Poly did one better, right? This lecturer said, you know, I have kids in my class studying social enterprises. We'll populate your youth at risk pages for you as part of our coursework. So that's uh, exciting for us. Now, now we have suddenly a lot of stuff uh, in youth at risk. Um, and... Uh, Journalists are here. I've always thought journalists were, would be a useful resource for this because if you kind of, uh, you report on a social beat, you, you get updated on social issues, so you write an article, you can easily place a synopsis of what you found out. There's a new service, um, uh, there's a new policy change, there's new funding source, etc. Um, put a link to Straits Times, new paper, today. Uh, it brings eyeballs to your article, but you've also contributed uh, and updated the knowledge base that the community can benefit from. Um, we don't know if we'll be able, so currently we have social causes and then we have community assets. We don't know if we can uh, look at locality-based mapping, like, you know, Wampo, McPherson, uh, Pulau Ubin. Um, so, uh, <laughs> It's bothersome, we can tell you our journey in challenges, but I just want to get to it. In fact, I'm going to... Um, I guess the, the, the three key things we learned about it is that uh, there's an analytic framework, right? How to match the needs, because this knowledge base needs to be user-friendly. It needs to be contributable to, so that anyone goes on it and says, 
I have this snippet of information, where should it go? And it all has to be coherent at the end of it. Uh, that's a challenge. We feel that we have a decent way of doing it, but things can certainly be improved. At first, I thought the tech platform was going to be the main barrier, but it turns out it's the least, the least difficult part because we have such a competent volunteer with us. This really is the, the hardest part, the participation and buy-in. Um, it's easy to give everyone a user ID and you can key in information right now, uh, but it's much harder to expect people to do that. And so we've kind of changed our uh, SOP. We've, uh, we've gone down to visit VWO's interested in this, do a demo to you, and you can tell us your needs and we can put it up there. And then we'll meet another VWO and maybe when we meet about 30 to 50% of the VWOs, we can convene network meetings so that uh, then everyone is there in the same space and can say, okay, does this sound right? Do we miss anything? And so that's been the strategy. We're kind of a bit more hand-holding, a bit more structured, uh, hoping that maybe if we do this in a year or two, then the community can take over. Okay. And um, I'll be sharing all these abstract things at academic conferences. In fact, I'm sharing this at two academic conferences, and it's all this kind of stuff. But all I want to say to you now is uh, this line, this line which, um, if you don't know, I play too many video games, and one of the video games I play is a multi-online battle arena game. And when I first downloaded it from on, on my iPad, there was this tagline. I'm going to show you the tagline. It made me feel like, wow, I want to be part of this. And this is the tagline, and this is the tagline I would give to you, <laughs> hoping that you will, you will sign up and be part of this. You're late. Let's do this, right? And so, no further ado, let me introduce um, the other speakers. Uh, we'll have um, Mr. Ho Han Ping from the Lian Center for Social Innovation. He's senior program manager there. Uh, he works on partnerships and a variety of capacity building projects around human capital needs in the social sector, social innovation, unmet social needs. And his current projects include a study on talent retention in Singapore. Um, can we welcome uh, Mr. Ho to the stage? Thank you. Hi, everyone. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Han, and I'm from the Lian Center for Social Innovation. Um, so just a very brief introduction. Applied research and capacity building are basically what we do at the Lian Center. And as a Center for Social Innovation based in a university, our business is knowledge creation. Uh, but actually, if you parse that out, it's more than just knowledge creation in this age. It's about really the ability to apply that knowledge in a meaningful and effective way. I think that's what universities are beginning to um, venture forward, not just knowledge for knowledge's sake, although there is a space for that, but really in the application aspect. And when you bring that down on another level, it's really in the business of people. Right, because what do you apply it to? Right, we apply it to the environment. And I think for the purposes of this forum, it's really focusing on the people. Um, so in many ways, we are still very much a traditional research institute. We produce publications based on our research. Right, so we have done um, areas like uh, you know, vulnerable elderly, uh, people with disabilities, um, single-parent families. Uh, but what we really emphasize on is the applied perspective. 
So it's not just about you know, creating a body of knowledge and then putting it in a repository for some researcher to use and to cite, but really it's about working with organizations, right? working with people on the ground level, working with people or entities from different sectors like the public, private, and social sectors, right? as far as we can in order to generate uh, evidence-based insights and also eventually interventions. Right, and that will take time. Um, we also want these publications or these outputs that we have uh, to have relevance to people who are out there whom we have not spoken to on the ground, but people who might be Googling and looking for you know, something about vulnerable elderly. So this is all available online, and we want people to also have that ability to make use of it for themselves in a meaningful way and to apply in a way that works best for their community. Right? So we're not so much in a position to say that this is what you should do, or this is what you must do, but these are some of the gaps, or these are some of the recommendations, and potentially these are the avenues that we can work towards. Right? And that is really the approach towards an evidence-based understanding of the landscape. Um, we also try to diversify in terms of how we reach out to our audiences. Right, so we do have publications like a magazine. It used to be annual, but we thought that maybe annual is a bit of a long lead time. Right? A lot of issues do move very quickly on the ground. So we decided to move it uh, into a biannual publication, and we've looked at issues like youth empowerment, inclusion, and uh, social finance. And to some extent, these are trending issues also because they do have a relevance in the social innovation space. Um, we try to also go beyond the print publication, uh, which many universities are known for, but are beginning to move towards the e-platform. Right? So we do have an online platform for these publications, which are generated every January and July. And we also add in additional articles on our online uh, platform, because that kind of gives us the leeway uh, to take something that's really current and write about it or disseminate information about that. Right, so being able to move in a more nimble space through an online platform, and we are available on socialspacemag.org. Uh, just a very sneak peek, uh, we are having our next issue out next month, and it's on tech. Right, we do realize that um, there are a lot of opportunities for community-based initiatives, and more and more we're seeing the technology platform as a great, um, I guess, medium to bring people together. Right, so in many ways, this is a, a space for us to consider, and we would like to take a look at some of the uh, issues related to tech and how you, we can potentially do social good uh, through te the technology platform. Um, I want to also go into a study as an example. So, I mean, this session is really about uh, collaborating uh, from a community perspective. Uh, but I just want to make use of an example of a study that we recently concluded on food insecurity in Singapore. So I believe this is um, uh, the first study on food insecurity in Singapore that takes into account the perspectives of both the food uh, support organizations and the beneficiaries themselves. So very quickly, we have not actually launched this um, officially, so I'm just very briefly going to mention some of the gaps and the recommendations. So in terms of um, uh, the key challenges, 
right? Basically, it's a lack of quality of nutritious food, inefficiencies in the food support system, and difficulty in addressing the root causes. So although there may be food provision to the needy, uh, there is still some way to go toward uh, providing nutritious food. And we do see a difference between the two, right? Um, and providing nutritious food actually does have an impact and effect on health and other dimensions of well-being, right? And those of us in the social services or who are familiar with the social services would be familiar with the refrain about inefficiencies, right? For example, the, um, um, in the case of uh, services, maybe there's a duplication of services, right? And in other cases, it could be a lack of services available. And in the case of uh, food drives, I'm sure some of you would be familiar, right? There are a lot of CSR programs out there that give up food packages, uh, but we also know that when you go into some of the homes of these aunties and uncles and you open up their food cabinets, there are kilos and kilos of rice in there that remain uncooked, right, and litters and litters of oil that remain unused, right? So the question is how can we provide services or how can we address a need uh, that is um, meaningful and applicable from the user's perspective? Right? And of course, there's also a need to go deeper into the root cause. I think this study basically understands that the food provision right, um, relieves the financial burdens to some extent of uh, needy households, but it is not a solution to the financial situation. Right? So there may be a need to look at the root causes. And for the uh, holistic recommendations, we do see that there's a greater need for coordination and uh, targeting of food support, prioritizing nutritious and quality food, as I mentioned earlier, uh, more community-based uh, food support. We do have community kitchens in Singapore already, but I think more can be done uh, in which people come together to cook but also to socialize because the issue of inadequate food is only but one dimension of food insecurity. Um, increasing awareness and understanding of need, right? Um, Singapore doesn't have a poverty index. It doesn't mean that poverty doesn't exist, right? It exists in many forms, and in many cases, it could be invisible to, to a certain extent. Uh, but at the same time, that also requires us to rethink what need looks like and our mindset towards um, addressing need. And finally, overcoming food insecurity through a food systems approach. I think some of the earlier speakers have talked about really collaborating and talking to other people to understand it from a more systematic um, level. So having that uh, view uh, would help us uh, to a great extent. I think food or support organizations can also be better linked up in terms of how they can provide the services in tandem with other social service organizations. So there might be other non-food related needs right, in these needy households. So um, this presentation is less about food insecurity, but more about it as an example to talk about some of the open collaboration needs that maybe the community can benefit from. I mean, I draw your attention back to one, three, and five. Really, when you talk about greater coordination and targeting of food support, whether we are seeing over Overserved areas or underserved areas, maybe a mapping um, a project can really help service providers to better understand where are the areas that are already served 
and perhaps better channel those resources in areas which are less served or least served, right? In terms of community-based support, uh, I think there's the need to understand the problem from a more holistic perspective, right? It's not just about inadequate food, maybe it's also about social isolation, right? Or it could be about stigma. And we all understand that these problems are not mutually exclusive, or these problems do not exist on themselves. And the, um, the fifth point, really overcoming food insecurity through a systems approach, really helping to link right, uh, from the ground level, what are some of the perspectives that organizations are seeing, whether they're providing food, whether they're providing counseling, whether they're providing tuition to youth at risk, or, or any kind of services, because it is a multi-dimensional issue we're looking at. Right, so um, I think when the Lian Center was uh, asked to participate in this collaboration right, by Justin, I thought we thought it was a really interesting way to approach social innovation, or rather social innovation was a way that we could um, tap on to really address certain needs. Right? So they could be vulnerable communities, the elderly, people with disabilities, people with food insecurity, but it was also a very great way, instead of waiting for publications to come out right, once every three years, right? <laughs> after all the copy editing and publishing and things like that, to kind of get people to get ground sentiment up. Right? And that was a great way also for people to make sense of what's happening on the ground level. You also empower um, people on the ground level, they could be students, they could be social service organizations, um, corporates having CSR programs, wanting to run a food drive, for instance, right? Or it could be students doing a project, right? These will also help them get real-time information pretty quickly, especially in this age where everyone Googles. You have a question, you Google, and then you take it from there, right? You don't necessarily go to a library nowadays. Uh, because it's too far away or there's so many other barriers to it. So I think um, the Wiki project is exciting, it's potentially messy, and, and I think it goes back to that question of how comfortable are we if it's not also you know, neat and tidy. Right, right now it may not be so neat and tidy, and in fact it may not eventually be very neat and tidy, but how comfortable are we to take this approach to address some of the issues that we face? and to address them collectively. All right, so thank you very much. Next we have Mr. Joe Chang. He's a volunteer with Trampoline Limited. It's a not-for-profit not not company as a tech consultant. And they introduce innovative instructional design and inclusive management tailored to help people with disabilities um, to enhance their employability. I think you train people how to code, right? And then they get jobs uh, based on that. So he's volunteered as an IT consultant to assist in the disability community network as well as the larger Open Collab uh, initiative. So can we welcome Joe, please? Okay, uh, good afternoon, everyone. Okay, I'll be uh, going through the uh, the challenges we face on the website. Um, <clears throat> okay, so basically, uh, this uh, website is actually for community uh, sharing. That's the purpose why this website is actually about. So we're actually looking at uh, hoping that uh, multiple people, even public as well, to actually come along uh, to this platform to actually uh, give their inputs and um, share their ideas as well. 
So this is actually our current stage at the moment. So uh, actually uh, the website now is actually closed. So the account is only given to a selective uh, amount of people at the moment. But uh, eventually we actually uh, have plans to move on to, uh, to public as well. So we actually hope that people can actually um, contribute as a, just like Wikipedia, everyone can contribute their, their needs. But of course, before we move to, to this next phase, we have a lot of challenges we have to uh, solve first. So these are the few challenges that we're actually facing. So for example, like the, the feel and the look of the website at the moment. Uh, previously, the website is actually uh, like this. Uh, before, Justin actually showed you the new interface, which he actually changed a few days ago. So we're actually still improving on that, working on it. And of course, uh, stability of the site as well. So all these things we have to go and set it before we actually release to the public to get more people to actually contribute. Yeah, so um, we're actually looking at manpower and actually on the, the funding as well. Because uh, for, for this site to actually use by multiple, a lot of, or even to the public, uh, we're actually looking at uh, how to increase the, the size of the server as well. Yeah, so these are things we're actually looking for. And of course, not just about um, the, the server itself, it's also on uh, looking after the content as well. Because if you're gonna uh, share this to public, we'll be looking at uh, having a content moderator to, con to look after the site as well. Yeah, so because currently this site is actually uh, just managed by me alone at the moment. So hoping that uh, there will be more people that uh, can actually hop on to this to actually uh, uh, help out on this site as well be uh, as a content moderator, moderator or um, enhancing the website. Yeah. <coughs> and, of course, uh, and of course on security aspects as well. Um, because currently the site is uh, still not secured yet because it's actually the closed uh, site at the moment. So we actually, in the future we'll be looking at uh, purchasing of security uh, certification also. So this is actually the, the current payment we are paying to host this server at the moment. So we are looking at about uh, 20 to $26. But of course, this amount will be definitely be increases um, when it actually open to public. We definitely have to increase the server. And of course, uh, we are looking at the purchasing of a security certificate as well. Yeah, in the future. Yeah. So um, uh, we actually welcome more people to actually help out on this site to make sure that this site will be um, something that everyone can contribute. At the same time, this site will actually continue to run. Uh, as the time passes well. Yeah, thank you. There's a strong call out for support and partnership. Um, I was wondering if Han Ping having all these nice glossy reports, will you now then upload it to the wiki site? Question mark. Um, the next uh, two presenters will be the use cases. So we have um, Marissa, Dr. Marissa from the Dis uh, Disabled People's Association. And let me read you her CV. She's, she's ED of the Disabled People's Association, which is a cross-disability and non-profit advocacy organization. She has a background in the study of ethics, politics, and public policy. So she's a thinker and a doer, which is quite rare. And as part of her work uh, with, at the DPA, she's been involved in implementation of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and giving feedback on the enabling master plans. Um, they are interested in building self-advocacy within the disability community and is currently working with DPA members to be inclusion ambassadors 
as well as writing the first ever Singapore Civil Society report on the CRPD. Can we welcome uh, Marissa, please? Hello, everyone. I'm, I didn't prepare a very nice presentation, so you just have to listen to my voice and me tiptoeing over this thing. <laughs> so one heals. Anyway, um, hi. So the Disabled People's Association is primarily an advocacy organization. So um, when Justin came to us about the idea of a disability network, we thought it was a great idea because we don't have anything like that. Um, you know, we have, you know, kind of meetings that we do that are ad hoc, you know, if a government um, body or agency wants to discuss something, um, you know, a new policy or the enabling master plan or something like that, we gather, we share, but we don't do it on a regular basis. And I'll go into a bit more about the disability sector uh, later on, but um, the there was a need for a network because we don't have anything like that. Um, so the first disability community network was held, the community network meeting was held on the 11th of May, 2018. Um, this meeting was the first official one, but there were two other meetings that we did beforehand that kind of set the scene for this first uh, disability community network meeting. Uh, in July, 2017, IPS and DPA uh, held a roundtable on employment discrimination um, and the idea was first raised and we asked people who came to hear about the, the discrimination study we did uh, to ask, you know, would people be interested in a network and kind of got the idea out there and people seemed, you know, a bit interested it was an interesting idea. Then we uh, also had another meeting in October 2017 where we discussed a little bit more of the, the admin details and the structure and kind of co-creating some ideas about how we'd want a disability network to look like. Um, and finally, we got it together in May 2018 uh, where we got a bunch of people in the disability sector to come together and share on the topic of employment for persons with disabilities. So just to share what the aim of the network is, it's the, a ground-up initiative or VWOs or now called social service organizations, nonprofit organizations, civil society, self-help groups, and other individual advocates who will come together to represent and act on the needs and gaps in the disability sector. It enables members to update one another on new developments and best practices, thus creating a community of practice. And, um, we have quarterly themed meetings. That's the plan. We're hoping to keep up with that timetable. Um, the first is employment. The next will be education. And if you want to know more about the when the meetings should be held and the themes, um, it's all on the wiki platform. And. The outcomes of this network, we have a lot of flexibility about what's discussed in the meetings and everything like that, but we're trying to be clear about the outcomes, is that needs and gaps report that um, Justin mentioned earlier, where we get the members of the network to share their needs and gaps, to validate those needs and gaps, so we have one clear uh, report every single year that has, you know, 
a bunch of organizations agreeing that these are the areas that we need help on so that we can go to other people, other think tanks, other organizations, more resources, maybe corporates doing CSR, and say, look, these are the areas that as a community we think need work, not individual organizations going to individual corporates and saying, okay, we need this, this, and this. So the network is relatively small right now um, because you know it is something quite new. Um, but we did have quite a few disability organizations at, the, at that first meeting. Um, the idea is to have more representation from disability organizations um, and parent support groups, but at the last one we had you know, some of the big names, but more kind of leaning towards intellectual disabilities um, organizations. Um, and the idea is that as and when it's relevant, we invite stat boards, government agencies, or other non ones that don't fit classically into the membership of the network to come and listen and share if it's relevant, right? So say it's education, then maybe you wanna invite in some people from special education at MOE, right? But they're not regular members of the network. So, you know, that, the, the format of the each meeting is kind of like people making presentations and then sharing research that maybe is not published yet or you know, is still in progress and we can kind of get a sense of what's going on in the sector and share some data, some information, things that aren't you know, maybe ready for um, release to the public but is okay for us to share within the sector. Or if something's ready to publish and we want to share it between the, the organizations as well. Um, but as Justin mentioned, there's the whole offer and request, right? So we share the studies, we share presentations about services, but then we request something from the rest of the members, because if not, we could just email each other the information, right? Um, the idea is that you know, if we want further research on something, or if we have some information but we don't have the resources to you know, elaborate on that or turn it into a position paper, the network will come together and share and provide expertise of how to do that. So in a way, it's kind of getting something from the ground up, sharing this information, but then you know, working with the people in the room to kind of share the language and the vocabulary of policy, right? So we can write those position papers, we can speak to government, request more uh, resources, speak to funders, and kind of raise the capability within that network if possible. So that's the, the, you know, the good stuff about it, like the kind of the admin of it all. But uh, the other question is why? Why do we need a disability community network? Um, because, you know, why should EDs, CEOs, or decision makers within those organizations come, give up a half a day, and sit at a network and share information? So we have to still um, make the case, the business case, I guess, for, for coming to these network meetings. Because what do you get out of it that an organization can't do by itself? Um, so we're still building that case because some organizations are very big and well-resourced. They don't, they don't need to work with other organizations. So currently we maybe have a little bit more traction with smaller organizations or less well-resourced organizations. And one of those groups is like, for example, a parent support group where a few people from their parent support group are here today. Um, but people who don't generally have voices or the resources, they will come into the network and buy in. Okay, I'm right out of time. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of things that we are, are struggling with in this disability network where we are trying to get people to be more um, 
open about sharing what they need because that's not something that we do in the disability sector, right? We, we want to pre present something that we've got our act together so that funders will come in and government will listen to us, right? So we need to be more open about sharing where the needs and gaps are in our own services and calling for help in the other sector because if we're honest, there isn't really a disability community, right? We're all replicating services, competing for funding and everything like that. So we're building trust in this community of practice and um, we are learning how to manage um, you know, how we have our discussions, how to weight and balance things, how to make it democratic, you know, how to get people to see the real value in sharing information of these networks. But the, I think the good thing about it is it's just that we started, right? You just start it, you do it, you get people in the room, and you start getting them in the habit of meeting regularly and starting to trust and share information. And how we figure out exactly what we do will come later, right? Because I think it's just, that's the, that's, if you wait for it to be perfect, um, you'll never do it. So I think that's the only thing really I can say going forward is that we're just gonna figure out as we go along and keep making the case for doing this community network and by, by getting people in the room, we're building that community that isn't really there right now. Yep, thank you. I remember in the early days, well, we were chatting Marissa and she said, you know, even if none of this happens, we've moved quite fast since we have a community network. She said, even if none of that happens, there's a wiki space and can just tell all these interns that come in, this is what the sector is. You know, I don't have to tell you the story all over again. That would be something. Um, the next uh, presenter is Jean Law. She's an intern in the Governance and Economy Department of IPS. And she's working on a joint research project on end-of-life end care policies uh, together with uh, IPS researchers Christopher Gee and Yvonne Arivalagan. Oh my gosh, Yvonne, I've always called you by Yvonne. I, it's so hard to pronounce your name. I only realize it now. The project aims to provide policy recommendations to gaps in end-of-life care policies in Singapore. And so this is a project that I know nothing about. Um, I'm... I'm familiar with the disability community and what we've been doing, but it's an example of all these other projects that we provide a platform for that I don't know what's going on. In fact, if you look at their pages, it looks entirely different from the rest of the pages. So it's good to get uh, her view. So uh, Jean, please. Uh, welcome, Jean. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Good afternoon. Um, I'm currently researching on end-of-life care with Christopher and Yvonne, as Justin kindly introduced. Um, and as this was identified as a very important issue to be addressed as Singapore's population ages. And so what we did was to talk to the different people in the end-of-life care sector and bring them together as part of a working group and identify the values and social cultural attitudes among Singaporeans that drive our perceptions towards end-of-life care. And hopefully, um, hopefully release a paper by the end of this year that will kickstart conversations in the end-of-life care space. So I'll be sharing briefly how the wiki page for the end-of-life care has been used, the advantages that we found as well as the challenges, and finally end off with the future plans that we have for the page. So hopefully this will provide some insight into how your organization can also use it. We started using the wiki page as a tool for two purposes. Firstly, to consolidate existing research and information, and secondly, as a platform for discussion with our working group members. 
So there are three pages, the resource directory, the needs assessment, and the white paper, and we'll be going through, I'll be going through each of them briefly. So uh, like what you saw from Justin's introduction just now, actually there's a lot of changes in the user interface. This is the very old version. Um, but as you can see, this is the first page of resource directory where I've consolidated information from different organizations in end-of-life care space, such as hospices, nursing homes, government organizations, as well as the instruments for end-of-life planning, like the AMD and the LPA. The second page is based on a needs assessment that Justin, um, uh, he, he mentioned it in the introduction uh, about end-of-life care that he did in 2014. What we did was just to make two big changes. Firstly, to include more updated information since 2014. And secondly, to reorganize the page into the sections that we were hoping to focus on for our project. So as you can see, there's um, information under infrastructure and financing as well as the family section. So the previous two pages, the resource directory and its assessment, they are both open to public, and so anyone can have access to the information. However, for the white paper, we chose to make it private access, at least to the members of the working group for now. So the idea behind it was because we, we are still working on the paper, we don't want to release it to the public yet, and so we thought some confidentiality would be beneficial. However, when the paper is finally released to public at the end of this year, we hope to also put all the information out there so that people can benefit from it. So now that I've gone through how we have used the wiki page, I think it would be good to share more about why we chose to do it. And there were two advantages that we found. So I know that um, Justin mentioned that it's not a knowledge repository. However, we felt that as a beginning, it would be good to bring together all the information that's out there and consolidate all the information and research that's being done because there's so much good stuff out there. We just wanted to pull all of them together. And I thought it was an interesting effort to improve information sharing among organizations within the same social sector and also across different social sectors because you can also view information from the disability network, the youth at risk as well. The second advantage that we found was that because the pages are open to public, many people can benefit, but at the same time, only those with accounts can edit the page. So um, information is protected because only those with accounts can log in to edit and it ensures that information is largely accurate, yet allows for information, information sharing to take place. So when we first started using the wiki page, the idea was for me to first go into the page and populate it with as much information as I could find and consolidate them onto the wiki page. After that, we would then go to the organizations in the end-of-life care space to ask for their opinions and for them to contribute. However, we realized that it is difficult to get organizations to be more involved, and I would hazard a guess at two reasons. The first reason is quite unsurprising. Many of the people in the organization are very busy with many other things to do. So for example, one of the working group members that we spoke to shared that it was not due to a lack of interest that she couldn't contribute, but rather that she was already very busy with many other projects. And this is understandable. The second reason is uh, more from some personal reflection. I realized that now that the end of life page has so much information up there, it can be quite overwhelming for someone who has never looked at the page previously to come in and contribute. And so if I can draw a quick analogy, I've been like a gardener tending to my garden. And it's very difficult for someone new to come in and contribute and plant new plants to the garden without first getting a bearing of the garden. And so it can be quite inhibitive to organic participation. So perhaps a blank slate or at least an emptier one 
could have been passed on to the organizations first and would have been more beneficial for organic participation. Nevertheless, we are very grateful to Joel, who has been very responsive and supportive in our use of the page. He helped us to restrict access for the white paper. He also made changes to the user interface, make it easier to edit, and we're very grateful to his help. He's very responsive, and it helps us uh, to use the page easier. So to conclude, um, I will briefly share our future plans for the page. Um, in the coming months, as we start writing our draft for the white paper, we'll be ramping up the use of the wiki by updating any changes to the white paper draft and so that um, our working group members can also look at it, provide feedback, and make any changes. The nature of the wiki page is such that it will require constant updating of the information, and since there's so much uh, information and research going on constantly, I thought it would be good if someone from within the end-of-life care space could come in and be the main contributor instead, because this person would then have more up-to-date information and on-the-ground knowledge, and as well as more ownership. So, yeah, I hope this short sharing has been beneficial to you. Thank you. Um, thanks for the presentations. We'll do a Q&A now. And I guess the funny thing, or maybe the magical thing about this is none of us, none of us are paid to do this. Uh, we wanted to do it. Joe certainly isn't paid. He's doing so much work. It's like, you would expect from his promptness and responsiveness that he's answering to a boss, but no, nobody's calling the shots here. And so that's, I think, the, the kind of um, motivation we, we brought in and the, the, uh, to this project. Um, I see someone waiting, dying to go to the mic to ask a question. Please. Um, hi, my name's Koki. Um, so thank you for the sharing. I, I have quite a long-winded question slash comment, so bear with me. Um, so I, I personally struggle with how we use the, the term community, right? In, in a context like this, uh, of the platform that you've shared, when you say it's a, it's a community network and you refer to the organizations that have come together to populate some of this as the disability community. So I, especially when it's a, a group of organizations or professionals who are not necessarily the people with the lived experience of that group, with the needs, with the assets, with whatever. Also, the assets seem to be assets of the sector, of that community of professionals. The gaps in the community of professionals, the needs of the community of professionals, or, or needs of the community is assessed by the community of professionals, right? So I have, I worry about that, like, lack of distinction, because I, I worry that we then co-opt the space of community of people with lived experiences of that. So, like, for example, are the people, I, I do, I do I did note that you, you mentioned that it would be open to public and to people to participate, but the first step, which already frames it, seems to be to go to organizations that work in these areas rather than to the communities that have the lived experience to map it, right? So, and I think that does set up a framing that influences further contribution or future contribution. Even, even to start with the categories on the page, like, so what informs what are the categories, you know, whether it's is it the way that the sector sees it or the people see it? And so it seems to be what is framed as community here is one lower level of experts, right? Rather than one government body, it's a network of organizations, experts, academics, people, but it's still a, a community of experts, if we can use the term community. So, and I, I think, I find it clearer when we have that identity that is separate from community and we just say professionals, right? Or organizations because 
like, if we're also a community of professionals, then what does it mean to be a community? If that, if we can also use community to describe representing an organization or representing, yeah, so, I mean, as, as we're here today, if it's called the Community Forum, but I feel like a lot of us are here representing organizations, right? But we say we're here as members of a community, like, I feel like I'm a member of some communities, but I'm not here as a member of those communities, like, whether it's like a gaming community or a, I don't know, a particular neighborhood community. So I do think it, it can make a significant difference when you're, um, if, if it's about policy gaps and all other kinds of like changes that are needed, it does look quite different if it's the community with the lived experience that's mapping it, that's contributing and building that, identifying what are the assets, identifying what are the gaps, what are the changes they wanna see, what are the aspirations and needs. So, and, and I do think a platform like this has really cool and radical potential for that. So I'm curious as to why that isn't the sort of focus or starting point. Um, yeah, sorry, it's a lot. I'll take a step and then hand it to, to whoever wants to comment. I think we, we did take an overly loose and fuzzy way of defining community because it's the first one and we want you to come, right? But you're right, There's, the question is, are we talking about actual communities or are we talking about a community of professionals or a community of organizations? And we have different ways to describe those. You know, we have networks or associations of organizations. Um, I think what you raised is really important because depending on who's in a room, the way you frame the experience, the, even the way you categorize needs would be different. So in a, in, I guess in a, um, I don't think we have all the answers, but I do think that we have an intention to be inclusive. So in, even in the disability community network, it's not only VWOs that get to come, even though those are, it's the usual suspects. So you would invite them, but informal parent support groups, you know, people doing ground up initiatives with no organization, all are welcome to come, but they themselves got to decide who, who should come, who should be there. Uh, and also the space itself, is democratic in a sense that you don't need to have credentials to populate the pages, right? I, you don't need to have a PhD and put your name behind it to make it credible. It's democratic in a sense that the, the, you assess the knowledge based on its own value. If it's a Straits Times report, is there a link to the report if it's a government stats? So there's, there's some, uh, some of that going on there, but I don't have the answers. Maybe Marissa, you have. Um, look, I empathize with what you're saying because uh, I think the, it's like what Gerard said earlier, right? Um, if you professionalize a sector, you actually weaken a community. And I've seen that, right? Where it, the, the individuals with the lived experience, if you, if you make it so that they're, you really reinforce the beneficiary role, if you create strong VWOs that are providing the services regularly, anything, in a way it takes away the onus on the community to demand and ask for and lobby for services or support and everything like that, right? Um, but at the same time, if you were to create a community in the truest sense of the word, where it's really ground up and you have people with lived experiences and people with disabilities coming in, you are ignoring the big players in you know, the disability sector as it is. The way the sector is set up is professionalized VWO is providing services. 
too many BWs professionalizing and competing with funding and replicating services and everything like that. You know, we're all doing really good work, but we're not doing it collaboratively sometimes. So my view on it is that we get all the players in the room into this network. Um, and in the background, what DPA is trying to do with the help and support of other organizations is to raise the capability within the disability community to self-advocate, to speak up, to be more confident in having these conversations. And hopefully along the way, we can then bring people with us into the room so we have more diversity of opinions um, in the network. As it is, the last network, someone did mention that there weren't any people with disabilities in the room or at least obvious disabilities. And that's true. It is a criticism that is um, it's a valid criticism. Um, but I guess that's the part where I say we're just starting, right? We really do need to work on the mechanisms to make sure that outside of the, of the meeting, we're working within our organizations and with other partners to raise the capability in the community so that we have direct representation of people coming into the room or at least having their inputs represented in the room um, but that's a much larger conversation that we could have about representation within the VWs themselves of the people with disabilities. But it is a process that isn't going to be fixed in that network, but it's kind of just a start. Hopefully we go, we go along. The, the mechanisms for feedback and input are much wider than whoever just shows up in the room. And the platform is one of them, but maybe we can do more in terms of our outreach and going out there and talking to people, gathering out information, and taking it into the, the network meetings. Jean, would you like to share whether your own, is it a, do you invite the real community in or the community of professionals? I think for now, um, we've just been working mainly with the working group members. So the working group comprises of people from the Agency of Integrated Care, as well as different um, healthcare professionals like medical social workers. And ideally, ideally, I think it would be good if the whole community, as in including the people who are facing end-of-life issues, would be part of it as well. But I think, mm, based on what we've experienced so far, trying to bring people on board, it's been quite difficult to get that involvement, mainly because they have so many other things to do. So the next best alternative was to bring them all into the same room and ask them, okay, so what do you think are the needs and issues that need to be addressed? And based on that, we created the categories in the white paper page. I cannot show it to you now because it's not open yet. But um, we spent a lot of time during the CDD actually talking about what categories, like what you mentioned, what categories, what are the headers that should even be part that uh, should even be placed there. And I guess that's the next best alternative that we can have now. But hopefully, like, if more people can come on board, I'll be very, very happy and very willing to let go and share the role and responsibility with them. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think one of the things that trip us up in the first place is when we call it the community. Because then it kind of gives you a, a false sense that it is a homogeneous you know, entity. But actually, it is very diverse. So I think when we approach that term, I mean, for lack of a better word, because language is limited, right? Uh, we need to have a shared understanding of what we actually mean. So when we have a community together, we actually are talking about communities. When we speak to an audience, actually we're speaking to audiences, 
right? Understanding that people may belong to this group, but they have a very different or perhaps even a unique experience or relationship with the issue, right? Whether you're a caregiver or whether you are a beneficiary or whether you don't want to be called a beneficiary. So I think what is important, and I'm putting on my partnerships hat over here, is not to focus too much on what we call something, but focus a bit more attention on what we are doing or what we are trying to achieve. So the process, the work, um, and also because it's a diverse group that we have, it's really about being able to create that shared vision or finding how you can, you can join with someone on something and perhaps join with someone else on something else. Right, because it's, it can't be a one-size-fits-all. So when we speak of the community, one perhaps is to kind of take a step back and say actually we're talking about a group of people who are very interested in a particular area and they may, not be, very they may be very unique, but they also have certain commonalities and how do we work towards that, right? So really focusing on the, I guess, the, the, the process and the end. Um, other questions from the community, the audience, the communities and the audiences? Hello again. Uh, it's a really interesting platform. Something that I was wondering was for some kinds of communities or issues, for example, in your wiki page, there's the migrant worker one. And, and recently I went for a talk where they said, there's this dilemma. You have this information that they have researched and they know the needs, but then they're faced, do you want to go to the press, make it public, and try and get everyone to know as much of this as possible, but then you jeopardize your relationship with MOM? Or do you want to keep on good terms with MOM and then keep it closed door and give up the, the possibility? So I was just wondering, how would a wiki page like this sort of navigate that? Is that a third option? Is that still the same dilemma where you know, we make it public or not? And thank you. Interestingly, the, the migrant workers page is relatively well populated, largely because we started working with HealthServe, the first organization that said, yes, let's do this. So we took everything they had, we put it up there. So it's very construction worker centric and less uh, foreign domestic workers. And then, so once we had that, we thought, okay, we'll mobilize the rest and maybe they'll be interested at home and transient workers count too. But they weren't interested, largely because, like you said, there's this fear or suspicion. You know, what's, why is IPS doing this? Are you trying to do surveillance on us? Uh, I don't know what their real intentions are, but none of the rest of the organizations in that space were keen and so we just kind of left it. But there was still, again, there's still information there. And so whenever anyone's ready, they can go up there to take it on. But as to the question of um, how do you then position this? Should you surface uh, information upwards or do you go behind closed doors? That's a larger question, but I guess what we're doing or experimenting with in the disability community network is um, trying different things out. So there is actually a working group interested to study uh, quota hiring for people with disabilities. It's always, always been quite contentious. Like half the people like it, half the people don't like it. So we proposed it and there's a group studying it. So they will go and study and compare other countries and possibly write a position paper. Now, who will put their names on the position paper? Not sure. But once you have it, we'll bring it to the network and say, this is what we have. This is what we think a strong recommendation might be. If you're keen to put your names on it, 
so be it. If you're not keen, we can decide, okay, if you don't put your names on it, that's fine. Do you want to uh, register a diversity of views? It can be a, a paper that registers differences, or it can just be a paper with a smaller number of organizations on board. So I think that will free up. It's, it's not like everyone has to be on board. There is a diversity, and there's contention, and friction, and differences. And I think um, the goal is to kind of find ways to move forward, because the alternative is not doing anything. If you speak with one voice, your voice is typically softer. Um, maybe you could add to, to that. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. We wanted people to understand that, you know, um, there is a problem with that anyway in the disability sector, getting people to sign on to position papers or research that is a bit contentious because the general kind of SOP is to take something to government in closed door discussions, have conversations, and then only if you cannot find a resolution or there's a huge difference of opinion, then you go public, right? Um, but it's not, it, I think it really will depend what we do, but um, one of the, the things that we shared in the disability network was uh, DPA's discrimination study um, about discrimination in the workplace. And it is contentious, you know, um, people agreed with the findings and all that kind of stuff, but we haven't necessarily got anyone else to sign on to it. But that's fine, at least we shared the information. Um, you know, people uh, had an opportunity to comment on it. And if not, we'll just publish it by ourselves. Uh, and that's, that's, that's the, the, the joy of this thing, this platform. We can share stuff. If people want to sign on, fine. If they don't want to sign on, that's good too. Um, it's very flexible that way and adaptable. Other questions? Who's keen to come on board, roughly? <laughs> or who has question marks? What is this for and what can we do with it? Uh, I have a question. Uh, my name is Yen I work at VWO. I'm just wondering, like in this, uh, we're trying to create this inclusive, open platform, uh, but how is content going to be moderated and who's the one moderating all this content? Because like, I mean, everybody can post stuff, but how, how is it being regulated and by who? Which is also another important question. Uh, currently, the content is, uh, if you actually ask me, there's no one is doing it right now. But we actually uh, hope to, uh, to find volunteers or even people that they are willing to contribute to that, to that role itself. Yeah, which is partially why that the current website is actually closed rather than public in a, at the moment. Yeah, because previously, the, the first two days, we actually released the, the account to more people and realized that the content uh, there's a lot of issue with the content, so which is why we actually now close it back. Yeah, so uh, unless we actually found people that uh, actually moderate the content at the moment, if not, then uh, you will just be like this for now. And and just to add on, um, when it was open, we had spam bots come and they created thousands of user IDs and thousands of pages, and we get rid of it. And then everything's backed up anyway, so Joe can you know go back to a previous version. But the content. The editorial for it really is a community effort. So because there is a disability community,
populating the pages and looking out for it. Um, so if you get things like you know vandalism or vulgarities, you can easily remove it. Um, if no one's looking after the page, no one has ownership of it, then the content tends to be messy and, and um, can uh, become unproductive. So that's the, I think the challenge is to then get different communities to take ownership of different pages. And it can be anything, it can be animal welfare you care about, it can be an environment, it can be LGBT issues. The, the platform is uh, issue neutral in a sense, right? Anybody can go to it and put up information. But who will look after the information if, let's say, nobody, nobody is owning the environmental information now? Uh, many people can go there and put rubbish, and it will be like that until, let's say, all the environmental groups come together and say, you know, we care about this, we're going to look after this, we're going to form networks, we're going to come up with editorial policies. The challenge is we, we try to learn from Wikipedia's own editorial policies, and my gosh, it is so complex. It is so... We thought, okay, we'll study what they do and then we'll implement here, but cannot. <laughs> it's almost like you need, uh, you need to have a year of study before you can figure it out. So we decided to uh, figure it out as we go along. If there's an issue that surfaces, what if people quarrel, what are we going to do? Then we look at what Wikipedia does and then we apply it here. So we'll build our policies, editorial policies as we go along. The backbone team will supposedly, I guess, um, think about the editorial policies, but the people doing the editing work, which is the community and the networks itself, will be doing the actual editing work, I guess. Um, this is about the wiki page, but also in general about the community networks, right? Um, I think it's just about changing mindset, right? I think we have to understand that a lot of times we come to these things, what are we going to get from going to a community network meeting? What are we going to get from populating pages in a wiki space? Um, but we also have to see, you know, what can I do for these spaces as well? Because I know it's boring to moderate stuff. And I know it's boring to go and log into things and add stuff, information, and everything that, that someone then may override tomorrow. But um, with all the, the, the gains that you get from creating a community of practice and sharing information, there's a lot of, you know, work that has to go in the, in the background and, um, and it, we really want people to come forward and suggest that they can volunteer a little bit of their time to do these things, to contribute, so that in the end we'll have something really nice and productive and we can say, oh, we, we came together and we did something, but there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of work behind the scenes and we need to all kind of share that workload so we don't have, you know, one person doing it all behind the scenes, doing the technical stuff for us. Um, so I. It's like that offer request thing. You know, we will offer you information, a platform to share stuff, a platform to ask for things or anything. But we're also asking for you guys to to really pitch in and and share that moderator role, so that it's no one person or two people taking on all the the workload. Thank you. And um, to end, I guess Andrew over there is my our business development manager. If you would like to find out more about the wiki page, want to see how it works, he'll go to you and do a demo and he'll kind of chat with you about all your questions and he can, uh, if you want to form a network, let's say you're interested in youth at risk or ex-offenders, right? Um, he'll, be, he'll be the guy, but contact any of us and we'll kind of uh, work something out together. But um, thank you very much to the panelists and I hope we can just Oh, one question. Okay, last question. Sorry, I didn't see you there. Hi. Um, okay, so I'll try and make this quick. Uh, I'm Lisa. I'm an educator. Uh, if I understand correctly, you want to improve network of organizations, 
I mean, um, increase this networking and increase collaboration, whether it's in terms of writing papers together and so on. Um, so my question is, few questions actually. So why this wiki page? I mean, there is already Wikipedia, why a separate page? Um, and I, while I see potential in this project as an educator, you know, something that it would be great to have as a student project, um, as a regular citizen, I, I have a few worries about this. Firstly, that it, there are many barriers to participation. I have created wiki pages myself, and it's very complicated to go and learn the new technology and to write this thing and learn how to hyperlink all the different things. So um, what, what the effect of that is that the people who do participate are going to be people with a certain level of expertise already. So is that really a kind of community effort? Um, so another issue I have is that there's a kind of danger in having a very definitive narrative, which, uh, or rather the, um, the appearance of having a definitive narrative there, um, especially if it's some, uh, a kind of value-neutral space that gives equal weightage to very polarized views. I, I mean, I'm thinking, for example, of the uh, LGBT issues where you may have LGBT community, but you may have Ping Dot and equally the, I can't remember the groups that are against Ping Dot on the same space, uh, both may consider themselves civil society. And um, yeah, so how is this space um, managed in that sense if it's totally value neutral and crowdsourced? And uh, something that appears to be a definitive narrative of the social needs and social space in Singapore. Um, so the first question is why use this platform? We have Wikipedia, uh, we have Google Docs, we have tons of platforms. I guess uh, you don't have to. I, I think the platform isn't an encyclopedia. You don't go in to find out what the definitions of things are. It's really a platform to understand what are the needs out there in Singapore. It's it, even locality-based, right? It's in Singapore. It's not anywhere else in the world. Who are the social or service support or organizational resources and assets that play in this space? What's the sense of the gaps? And maybe cause of the gaps, and therefore possible solutions. So the wiki space has been structured to that. I'm sure you could do it in the same way using Google Docs. We just, um, in fact, we're kind of open about the platform. If there's a better platform, there's new functionality, and we're happy to uh, explore. The other questions are much harder. I think the barriers, um, only high competence uh, people or users can use it, and I don't have the answers to that. Uh, only accept that maybe, not everyone's going to be able to use the wiki, but they can join the disability community network, right? And they can be part of the conversation. Not everyone has to be a user to be part of the conversation. Uh, so there's an aspiration to do that. And in terms of polarized views, we don't know. We don't know how it's going to work, but we're going to try. So for example, we do know that there are editorial wars that happens in Wikipedia. So you, somebody puts in something, somebody deletes it, and it goes on and on. Apparently, there's a way to remove that conversation somewhere else until it's resolved, then you move it back again. I don't know how it works. That's what one of my previous RAs said. And so I, I just take it at that face value. We haven't got all the answers. Um, do you want to add anything to that? Anything? I don't know. I guess my, my point is maybe not so helpful, but if for me in the disability sector, even if you get to the point where you have that debate, that's a plus for me, because right now we don't have much at all, right? We all work in our own little spheres. We disagree on some things, but there's no 
big debate and an effort to find some sort of agreement on issues. Um, so, you know, for example, like even just in the disability community about having a medical model versus a charity model versus, you know, uh, a social model. Um, and then you have other views coming in, like sometimes religious views about disability. There's a lot of disagreement, uh, but we're not having those debates to try and find some consensus, right? And in, in the effort to do, the, do that, we might come up with some new understandings. So I actually want to, I would like to get to a place of debate. <laughs> um, an open debate. Nice way to end. Thank you, panelists. Uh, let's give them a round of applause. We're on a tight schedule, so if I sound abrupt, I apologize. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>